Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hey, friends, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. We are chewing. We are chewing, and the definition in our jaws is something to behold. Let me tell you. Welcome, all you weary travelers, back to the world of war and peace. How are you ladies doing today? Pretty good. Great. I am. I have appetite fatigue, if we're going to continue with this, this chewing metaphor. We may as well. Why not? I have to be honest. It's lunchtime here. Yeah. I'm like... <laughs> legitimately hungry actually so i'm not appreciating this talk about food (laughs) fair enough fair (laughs) enough okay so here's what i wanted to do and all of you listeners might be expecting this after reading the selection for today you're probably expecting a rant from me (laughs) because i have been ranting low these many weeks about how tolstoy just will not stop making the same point over and over and over and over again and there's only a handful of options he either thinks i'm an idiot or he thinks himself to be such a genius that there's no way anyone could possibly have understood him the first time. And so he just keeps repeating it. And he does it again here, but I, I confess to you that I, I feel like he said it the clearest way possible this time. I think he may actually have come right out and said something important about his theory of history uh, as he's winding down towards the end. And it's in the it's in the the middle chapter of our selection for today, so I won't come right out and say it now. But I'm excited to talk about this because even though it's just the one conversation over and over, I think he may have said it really well this time. What do you guys think? Can I posit a third option for his sure. doing this, which is well, I think it's a really relatable one, and I've tried to articulate this a couple times before and haven't been super successful. <laughs> but what I see is a man who is really anxious to get his idea into the world and he sees Mm. that there's a lot of opposition to it and that he doesn't have a lot of people on his side and he knows that people are going to react violently to his idea and so he is he's circling back because maybe if i say it again this time people will will understand it and they might have this objection, but I can say this to it. And I I see Tolstoy as a kind of Pierre-like figure who is just worried that his work is going to come to nothing. And some people react to that by being silent, and others react to that by talking more. <laughs> mm. I like that. I think that's a very compassionate reading. Of Tolstoy, I think he is more strident than that gives him credit for. Um, one line in particular from today's section rings out in response to that. He says, he's talking about the movements of the French as they're retreating. And he says, even this final act of flight, known in human language as the final degree of baseness, which every child is taught to be ashamed of, even this act receives justification in the language of historians. It's just so vitriolic. And the, the contrast he's putting up is the language of humanity versus the language of historians. Like, you garbage people. I don't know. It's really, <laughs> it's really heavy-handed. I, but I can I see agree. what you mean. 
that he's maybe the reason he's circling the topic over and over again is he's worried that he'll be misperceived. Yeah, I think that might be right. I think both of you are on to different aspects of the same idea, because what stuck out to me anew in this section that I hadn't really gotten before was the fact that I think Tolstoy's main concern is that he not, that his ideas not be pushed aside because they smack of some sort of nationalism and revisionism Mm -hmm. in the way he's doing his history. He's really concerned that people understand he's making a legitimate philosophical point that doesn't have anything to do with him being Russian. And in this section, he actually comes out and says that. He basically says, look, apart from it, apart from the fact that I'm a Russian, and I am, mm-hmm. apart from that fact, the way the historians are writing this scene doesn't make any sense. It's illogical the way they, and look, he's had to set that argument up and make it via various philosophical ins and outs over the course of this whole war. But few things are as clear as how it went in this retreat. Mm-hmm. Just to, to narrate the history really mm-hmm. quickly, Napoleon and his troops and his metaphor of, a, of playing blind man's buff was a, was a great um, was a great one, I thought made it made a lot of sense. But their retreat was devastating by any measure. They exited the country with one one thousandth of the troops they entered it with. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were completely and utterly annihilated. And happened with almost no contact with the Russian troops. Mm -hmm. The Russians didn't harry them from the country. They did their best to follow them as they destroyed themselves with their own two hands on the way out. So there's just no, there's no way where that the historical account that comes down to us of Napoleon making a brilliant escape into retreat makes any sense at all. And I think he does actually get away in this section with saying that. And having the point be about how we do history, not having the point be Russians are awesome and the French stink. Which may have been his main concern all along, as Emily was sort of suggesting to us. I agree with that. There's a new contrast where he's drawing from something beyond his nationalistic spirit to make this this argument, this final argument that they're they're leaving. The, the manner of their retreat is undeniable. And he goes beyond nationalism to like a source of good and evil outside of humanity altogether. I thought this was maybe the thing you were referencing as the clearest point in our section for today. He says, it never enters anyone's head that the recognition of a greatness not measurable by the measure of good and bad is only a recognition of one's own insignificance and immeasurable littleness. Mm. For us, with the measures of good and bad given us by Christ, nothing is immeasurable and there is no greatness where there is no simplicity, goodness, and truth. Mm -hmm. It seems to be the, he's showing his hand at last and saying the ruler by which I have been measuring whether these events in the past were good or bad is by a Christian principle. Everything is compared to Christ and what he says about good and bad. What do you guys think about that? I thought it was absolutely beautiful. And, it, and that is exactly what I was referencing. I, this is the clearest his point has ever been. But, it, but the necessary backdrop to it is that he's not just talking about whether the actions taken by either side in the war were good or bad. He's talking specifically about Napoleon, the man. And this is where something you said earlier jumps in again. He's talking about a human portrayal of history. Yeah. 
not uh, an ideological portrayal of history. And what he's basically accusing the historians of is saying, you are attaching greatness and the measure for defining greatness to something besides this external standard. And that's that's apparent to me because there's no way you could call Napoleon's actions in this situation great. They just don't add up to that. The human being does not equal the ideal that you have, as a historian, made him represent. Right. The ideal you're using as a historian to measure Napoleon and present him to me is idiotic. And it doesn't actually amount to saying anything. And so I can be sure that the standard you're using is a broken standard. Here's the one I'm using. Yeah. The standard I'm using is this. And I think that's attractive. It's attractive to me in a way that not a lot of his ruminations have been so far. Because it doesn't feel like tired intellectualism. It doesn't feel like him tooting his own horn about how brilliant he is. It doesn't feel like him setting up an alternative historical perspective. It feels like him doing what a what a... An author of literature does what an artist does, which is to say, identifying humanity and drawing conclusions based on human nature, which he can know because he himself is a human being. So it's safe for him to assume that Napoleon is human and and he can say things about Napoleon that he would say about himself. Yeah, I'm I'm looking more closely at the passage. I think you're right that it's he's drawing out the humanity of Napoleon and separating him from the ideal of the great man theory that historians use. He says uh, in the middle of chapter 18, it's as if greatness excludes the possibility of the measure of good and bad. For the great man, there is no bad. There is no horror that can be laid to the blame of someone who is great. And I just think of the entire project that Tolstoy has been going about. Every character is capable of baseness and badness. And it's one of the reasons that his characters are luminous, right? They're, they're deep because they're capable of horrifying sin. And, you know, he's basically saying Napoleon has to be a normal man. He can't be a great man because... There is no great man but Christ. I think he also is pointing to something that is just true of the way that human beings look at themselves, too. Uh, He says, he talks about this line that people repeat, that I've heard repeated actually myself, that Napoleon said supposedly on his way back, there's only one step from the sublime to the ridiculous. And people take that up and repeat it. And I think that phrase in itself is what Tolstoy is talking about here that there's something in us that looks to men in power and assume that that automatically makes them sublime. Right. And I mean, I just think about all these great supposed heroes that humanity has held up over the course of its history. Uh, Caesar, for starters, what about like the fictional heroes of old, like Achilles, Hercules, you name it, like there's these men that people hold up as sublime and it's not because we measured their actions based on good and evil. It's just that there's some kind of greatness or nobility that we think we see in them. And we don't stop to ask, well, <laughs> they were, but what they were dictators, right? They right. were, what about they the were conquerors. Hamartia, yeah. The fatal what flaw. It, yeah. What's the morality of conquering a nation what about what about napoleon he also has been idolized and continues to be in some ways and do we ever stop to ask ourselves what what was his project a good one right well and it seems to me one of the things he's saying is look the only right way to have this conversation is about what we know 
And that's not his, how historians choose to do it. Historians choose to, to read the writings of these great men, right? And he says, look, all the plans that Napoleon made, and this is him paying attention to the details, all the plans that Napoleon made and all of the orders that he sent out existed on paper only, is what he says. These existed on paper only because we actually know about the movements of the troops. And what the troops did was run away! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Desert! That's all they did. There's None of those orders were followed. And I think his attention to detail is really interesting in that regard. He's, he's not only saying, look, we need to have a better standard for measuring humanity, and so this great man theory is bunk, but he's saying, I've also got you surrounded because the details of the scenario don't back your view. They simply don't. And the, the last chapter of this section was really interesting to me because he makes a super compelling case via logic and then also via the circumstances that historians are willing in order to defend the great man theory, they are willing to ascribe a motive to the Russian army that is completely fictional. Did you guys notice that? It's, it is the height of revisionism. They're actually saying what the Russians were about here is cutting off, capturing, and utterly annihilating Napoleon's forces. And so they failed, and Napoleon is a genius for getting away. He, he said, says, this that didn't was exist. not the point. Yeah. yeah, this aim absolutely did not exist. The point was for them to leave them alone. Get out of Russia. Leave. That was the point. That has been the stated point all along. It's been Kutuzov's point since minute number one. And through that lens, the Russians are successful, actually. They efficiently basically herd them out of their country. Right, of course, but that's not even his point. In fact, he's willing to, to this is part of the, where he defends himself as not a nationalist. He basically is willing to say, actually, even the, the, even the Russians' aim of getting, or yeah, the Russians' aim of getting Napoleon and the French out of their country couldn't have come about because of any one man's vision. We've already seen in previous battles that Kutuzov is incapable of telling his troops what to do in a way that they will understand. Like, it can't be managed. It wasn't managed. This is just what happened. It's actually a really beautiful example of his point because he's not saying Napoleon isn't great, but the Russians are. Mm -mm. No, the Russians aren't great, but they are good based on his new tools of evaluation, right? Good and bad. What they are doing is their very best to make sure that they uh, have a witness account of the fact that the French have left their country. They're just there to make sure it actually happens. They're defending their homeland and their own people. Mm. And that is good. Right? Th that, it's yeah, not great. It's not like heroic by the old standards, but it is good. Right. And I think we could probably have a profitable conversation about whether we agree with his ascribing goodness to a people. That's a... That's a massive claim. We've met lots of Russians that were not good guys. But I think what he is doing is laying a burden of responsibility on the artist and on the historian and saying, in the way that you interpret and that you write the histories of these nations, you ought to be using this standard, right? So what does that make you think, Emily, about your vision of Napoleon? And we were talking before we got on the air about how you've, you've done a little bit of reading about him the man himself and what we know of him from history. How does Tolstoy participate in that conversation? Well, ha I mean, has it changed your own views at all? I have always been uncomfortable with Napoleon and I don't think that's, that's uncommon, but 
I do think that this section that you guys have been pointing out in chapter 18, where he places Christ as the ultimate uh, evaluator of history, kind of plays out something I've been wondering about this novel, which is Napoleon, he, he was out to assert democracy on other nations, in, but um, he, he wasn't... Like, like part of the the Russian Revolution and the new Enlightenment ideals that grew out of that were explicitly atheistic. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Napoleon famously, I've talked about this before, he famously adopted whatever religion he was currently in in the midst of, right? To the Muslims, he was a Muslim. And then we Tolstoy told, told us that he tried to be Orthodox to the Orthodox, and that just didn't work because at some point he's butting up against truth. And so maybe the most important thing going on isn't actually a political system, but it's the religious system of the country that is its strongest and that that is what disqualifies Napoleon's project and gives him no business to be messing around in other countries' affairs, which I don't think that he had that business or right anyway. <laughs> but hmm. Megan, I don't, I mean, you and I came from the same educational background. That we did. I'm speaking in code, something most of you probably already know, which is that we were both homeschooled around the same kitchen table for our entire is it code? Is it? undergraduate education. <laughs> but um, we didn't spend a lot of time on Napoleon. I mean, my, no. the, the sum total of my imagination about Napoleon is that he is the the origin of the the Napoleon complex, where a really, really <laughs> short guy has to work extra little hard. Little big man complex, yeah. Yeah, it's a little big man thing. And, and that's, frankly, that's pretty much it. For Tolstoy, it's little great man. Little great man. <laughs> the little great he man wasn't complex. actually all that short. <laughs> he wasn't. No, this is a famous misconception about Napoleon. He was man he about was your guy. size. <laughs> he was yeah, a normal guy, huh? Well, shoot, he was a little guy. Man, that history, history has really done him wrong in that regard. <laughs> well, I think I don't know. I don't want to exon. I, I love the comments that you guys have made today, and I think that that I'm getting a little bit more clarity on what Tolstoy's after and the idea of him coming back around to human nature, which is the thing that makes him a great novelist in the first place. Like the characterization and the fact that every single one of these characters are people I can identify with and I can hop into their shoes and see the world through their eyes and feel what they feel. I mean, that's an incredible gift that he has. And I'm excited to see him turning back into that in the way he's talking about Napoleon and talking about the history. I agree. I was pleased to see him applying his great gift of personalizing characters to this historical figure. I think that that I wish, and this could just be personal, but I wish that he had been doing that all along and that there were there were fewer philosophical treatises and more the Napoleon that he would like us to see dramatized on the page. You know, I think that arguably he is he's in the wrong seat on the bus when he steps over and gives us a philosophical essay i think that his the power of his prose is in those those dramatized moments and i wish that he would just stick to it because i think he could make all of these arguments just as well if not more powerfully if they were subtle 
I mean, he didn't. And so it's beside the point. And he's been very clear with us now about his aims. And maybe we wouldn't pick up on it quite so much had he not done that. But I can't help but see each of the comparisons that he made in these four chapters, each of the illusions, like the blind man's bluff, uh, buff, blind, man, blind buff. man's buff. That I game. don't know what it means either, but that's the word. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a literary contrast, though, right? He's setting up a yeah. metaphor or a simile. This historical route is like this game, and I'll show you how. And those moments really shine. And I think that he could he could accomplish it all with just some comparisons like that. So I, the essays drag. They continue to drag for me. I kind of agree. And it, what I was going to say to start this is I don't want to exonerate him altogether because I still think... One of the things that bothers me about this whole novel and about Tolstoy as a writer thus far, a limited experience, I need to read Anna Karenina, I'm sure. But but what bothers me is that he is not content to be a novelist. He also wants to be a historian. And it's not that you can't do both of those things. But also scorn historians. Right. But that, that all of that does, for me, present a little bit of, of a guy at cross purposes with himself. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I say this is a fun section because there's a glimmer of hope of him reconciling himself to himself. Yeah, maybe he maybe he'll be friends. Emily, you've read Anna Karenina. Does he do this kind of thing in Anna Karenina? He does not. Hmm. Anna Karenina is absolutely wonderful from start to finish. Buckle up, Buttercups. We're doing it next. I know. Wait, Let's roll. Let's go. We are not doing it We're next. Doing Although it next. we should no probably fear. start Please, having conversations. Dear, if your heart just clutched that. with terror, yeah. I was lying. I was lying. It's fine. Yeah, we should have that conversation. The end is coming quickly. But I think having read Anna Karenina, actually, I have more compassion for this project because it's so clear that it is a project that he set out to act. He like intentionally set out to be both historian and novelist, Um, not at some kind of cross purposes, as you say, but to see if he could reconcile the two if he could use his literary gift to expound on a historical and philosophical idea that he had. And, and do you think it works? Well, I don't, I don't know. I have my doubts just like you guys, but here we are reading it still, you know? So anyway, all of that to say, I guess the only point of that is that Anna Karenina is great. It's better. <laughs> Anna Karenina. I don't know. I mean, well, this hasn't, this hasn't ruined my appetite for Tolstoy. I, I want to read more. The passages you're talking about, Megan, the ones that shine are blinding. They're very, very good. And as we, I hope, have elucidated today, even the philosophical passages have merit and there's enough to sink your teeth into. And he's, I mean, he's good at philosophy. I just, for myself, wish that he'd written two separate books. You know, here's here's my philosophy in a neat, tidy package. Here's a package. companion volume. Yeah, here's a companion volume. Here's what I discovered in studying this time period. And then... You know, in a separate volume that is all plot, here is Pierre and <laughs> Natasha. Where the heck is Natasha, you guys? Nata- we haven't read about Natasha Hundreds in 300 pages. pages. Because he's doing this philosophical stuff. You see what I mean? Like, that does rankle a tiny bit. No, a lot. A lot. It rankles a lot. Honest to goodness, when's the last time we read Natasha's name? Was it Andre's <laughs> death? I think it was Andre's death. It was Andre's death, yes. Yeah. So when, where does, when does Andre We got die? a little contrast with her with Petya. Because he was like her somehow. But, I mean, we haven't seen her in years. Tolstoy time. <laughs> <laughs> the wounded man was Prince Andre Bukowski. I, uh, I'm going to find it. We're going to know. I do kind of wonder how she's doing. Me too. He's like, oh, by the way, the love of her life is dead. Moving on. I'm not moving on, Tolstoy. I'm still back there. Where you know? is 
I do believe that Andre's was the death. ending of volume three. Ending of volume three? Emily says archly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was very arch. That's true. As Ian looks for that, I just I just read the very first line of the next part, part four, that we will start next time. And it starts like this. When a man sees a dying animal, dot, 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 <laughs> Tolstoy, you've done it again. It was page 923. Wow. So we are, so that's the last time we saw Natasha. So it's, it's, we just finished page 1074. Jeez. Well, I have good news for you because although, yes, if you were to just look at the first page of part four, you might get distressed. If you turn the page, you immediately see that the next character we have to deal with is Maria. Princess Maria. Okay. Yay! Fine, fine, fine then, fine. All right. well, okay, 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 you guys. Good. So we have now made it to the end of part three of volume four. How many parts are there in volume four? Well, I don't know. Four. Probably easier to say how many parts aren't there. Um, <laughs> it, it's, tr- it's 1214, 1215 pages altogether. And we're at page 1074. So we have like 200 pages left, which sounds like a ridiculously high number to those who are accustomed to reading novels that are roughly 200 pages in length. <laughs> but it's, it's very close in the, the context epilogue, of the piece. You guys, the epilogue has two parts. What? <laughs> So it is, we are tumbling, believe it or not, we are tumbling towards the close. And we'll be done by high summer. We'll be done by early <laughs> summer. So uh, there's already some chatter going on in the Facebook group about what it is that we're planning to read next. And I know like privately we've had some conversations about that, but I guess maybe we should have an open invitation for listeners to... We should put up a poll. Yeah, probably. comment on our Facebook page and tell us what you're thinking. Um, currently... My thought is something like Steinbeck, like really change it up, do something maybe a little more modern. That might be kind of fun. I don't know. But we're open to suggestions. They suggested Middlemarch in the in the Facebook group. The problem with that, well, I'll tell you off the air, but I, I've read that one before and I love the fact that I've never read it. Like this is, we're checking off bucket list <laughs> items, you know? I kind of feel that way too. Also, Middlemarch is a bore. No, bore. it's not. Oh man. Fisticuffs in. Fisticuffs. Okay, well, we're going to do these fisticuffs off the air. Thank you all, (laughs) as usual, for joining us. Please do join the conversation on Facebook. We love to hear from you. And we will choose another book. We haven't been completely exhausted in our ambitions to continue reading together. And we hope that you haven't been exhausted either. Um, So, yeah, you know, keep hope warm. And good luck in the next five chapters. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt your conclusion, but we are taking a week off in between this episode and the next so readers beware we are coming back after a brief break bon appetit bon appetit bon appetit bon appetit bon appetit bon appetit want to follow along with our reading you can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.